Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It does not take into consideration your personal objectives or circumstances. And we have a competition running mark. We do. We do. So hopefully people have heard this before. But if you submit a rating and a comment through your podcast app, you could win a copy of The Little Book That Builds Wealth by Pat Dorsey with a foreword by our founder, Joe Mansueto. So the book provides a sensible framework for identifying companies that can sustain high returns on capital, which basically just means we're looking at moats and talking about why they matter. That's right, Mark. And you can get your hands on a copy by leaving a rating and comment through your podcast app and emailing us to the email in the episode notes to let us know you've done that so we know who you are. We'll pick our winners this week and get in touch via email and send it out to you. So back to the episode. Today, we're going to talk about what makes you a good investor. That's right, Shawnee. So we're looking to explore what it means to beat the market and whether for an individual investor, this even matters. So part of this is looking at the different drivers of success, whether that's asset allocation decisions or individual security selections. But part of it is also just you and your, you as an investor and your behavior. And this isn't a scorecard. It isn't something to check yourself against and declare yourself a stellar or poor investor. The purpose of this is to really just provide yourself a chance for a retrospective look at how you have utilized opportunities as an individual investor and how you've measured success and whether it is serving you. Then allowing those insights to inform your investing approach in the future. Okay, so why don't we start with the traditional way that you measure success? Yeah, so if you're a professional investor like a fund manager, you're measured against the performance of a benchmark. So for example, if you're the portfolio manager of a large cap Aussie share fund, chances are that your benchmark will be the ASX 200. And the index represents the average. So logically, doing better than the index is doing better than average, and doing worse than an index is below average. Yep, I'm used to below average, so uh, <laughs> so that's where I stand. But uh, but yeah, so obviously your performance is measured against the performance of this index. So if you underperform the market or outperform the market, it all compares to this index. So many individual investors just default to this way that professionals measure success. So they compare their return to a benchmark. But that only works because professional investors have narrow benchmarks that are part of their mandate. So as individual investors, should we be judged by the same sorts of benchmarks? If you constructed a diversified multi-asset portfolio, should your returns be measured by how it performs against the AS? X200 or a multi-asset index like we have here at Morningstar, like the Morningstar Aggressive Target Allocation Index, or do you compare each asset class with corresponding indexes? And then are you measuring your performance in the same way that the industry does? So one, three, and five years, does this actually have any relevance to you as an investor? Yeah, so this isn't an interview, and we're not going to spend the episode <laughs> just asking you questions. It's a very one-sided interview because nobody can actually answer. Um, but yeah, we're going to start answering some of these ourselves. So maybe it's an interview for us. So let's start with the ways that you can evaluate whether your portfolio has been successful. So let's go back to that example of the portfolio manager that is measured against a benchmark like the ASX 200. Mark, do you think that's a fair way to measure your performance? No. Okay. <laughs> Do you want to expand on that a little should, bit? Should I say any more? Yeah. Is that just the end of the episode? <laughs> yeah. Um, so listen, I, I know that it's probably the most prevalent comparison. So logically, your mind points to, oh, my portfolio did 10% this year and the ASX 200 did 12%. 
So in that case, my portfolio, my portfolio is underperforming. And this is assuming that you've gone through the portfolio construction process and there's a reason that your portfolio isn't the ASX 200. Yeah, exactly right, Mark. And that reason is obviously that the portfolio is constructed to reach your financial goals instead of just beating an index. At the end of the day, that's very different to a professional investor who isn't able to account for the individual goals of all of the investors who might be in their fund. There's a middle ground, though, between professional investors and individual investors, and the middle ground is a real return fund. So a real return fund focuses on achieving a certain percentage per year above the rate of inflation, which is, for all intents and purposes, the same goal that investors following a goals-based approach would use. Yeah, so basically what this means is that these fund managers will aim for, say, CPI plus 4% instead of beating the ASX 200. And this CPI plus goal is also how individual investors would frame their return goals based on a required rate of return. Saving and investing is an exercise in delayed gratification and not an academic exercise, meaning that you're not just spending money now so that you can spend it later. So the first thing you would want to do is make sure that you're not actually losing money, so earning a return less than CPI. And the second thing is to grow the purchasing power of your money, which is the plus in the CPI plus. So if I went through the portfolio construction process and I defined my goals, I would receive a required rate of return, which acts as the same kind of benchmark as a CPI plus goal. Yeah, this is a way that many investors can see if they're on track and checking whether your portfolio is reaching the required rate of return is one way of understanding that. Of course, this can fluctuate due to the market cycle, but as a general rule, this can be used over the long term. Another way of understanding whether you're a successful investor is looking at the individual components of your portfolio. We spoke about the problem of comparing the returns of the ASX 200 to a portfolio that's diversified across asset classes, but what if those asset classes were compared against their respective benchmarks? marks. Yeah, I think that it logically makes sense to do that. So, for example, if you measure your Aussie equities portion against the ASX 200, the international equities portion against the MSCI All World, etc. But what you are what are you actually achieving from this? I think when we do this, we're benchmarking ourselves against this arbitrary number that's based on the market. And in actuality, this number really doesn't have much to do with us, our portfolio, or our goals. Realistically, when investors are making this comparison, they're comparing their returns to an index because they know they can go out and get that index return through a passive vehicle. And I think this is the trap that a lot of investors fall into. They fall into comparing themselves against benchmarks that are relevant to their goals, and studies show that this means they just end up chasing returns to the detriment of their actual outcomes. And this, in reality, is what a lot of investors do. When you're comparing yourself against these benchmarks, it is very tempting to chase the performance that you're missing out on. And this really only works if past performance accurately reflects future performance, which we know it doesn't. And an investor that's reliant on that investment consistently outperforming. And that's really called performance persistence. Conversely, investors with buy and hold strategies have little faith in performance persistence and believe that excess returns are achieved over the long term without switching investments. So Vanguard ran a study, and I love studies, called Quantifying the Impact of Chasing Fund Performance, which is riveting stuff. And that compares these two groups those that had faith and those that didn't have faith in performance persistence. That is, those that chased performance and those that just bought and held. In this study, they invested in around 1,700 funds, all had an above-median three-year annualized return. For each year that passed, they looked back at three-year rolling returns and sold any fund that was under the median and reinvested that in the top 20 funds of the group. 
Yeah, and of course, they needed a comparison to buy and hold. So for this, they invested around 3,500 funds. So every fund in the coverage universe they had. They only sold what the fund was discontinued and reinvested that money in equivalent fund performing at the median. And the clear winner was a buy and hold strategy. It was superior across all types of equity funds, large to small cap value to growth. 1.5% was the smallest different in performance with the mid cap value and 4% for the mid cap blend. And this isn't just theory. Investors have been shown to diverge from investment strategies because they're drawn to recent winners. What comparisons to market index fails to add is context. Long-term investment success cannot be achieved without understanding that below average performance is inevitable, and that might be part of being a good investor. Understanding that it's not always about winning and that it's about long-term results. Yeah, no, that's exactly right, Shawnee. So investors that show discipline should find ways to avoid temptation to chase performance. And although it seems counterproductive, a yardstick isn't always what you need to measure this success. It can often lead to FOMO, so fear of missing out. And investors, <laughs> well, it's important to say that, yeah. and investors tend to stray from their goals and strategy and towards performance chasing. Yeah, that's right, Mark. Ultimately, there's this notion in investing, wealth maximization, and investing to have the most money possible. And it's just not a good approach because these strategies mostly lead to poorer outcomes. It isn't the concept that's a problem, but the behavior that it encourages. If you want the most money possible, you're always going to be looking at where the highest returns are and then chances are moving your money to that. So after the last couple of years, you'd have a portfolio that is just crypto, SPACs, and thematic ETFs. I can imagine that most of the investors, hopefully listening to this, don't have a portfolio that resembles that. So this has turned into a little bit of a, you know, like a myth-busting ESG episode where we've told you what doesn't make a successful investor. Yeah. And, and still, there's nobody here with a beret. Yeah. <laughs> Shawnee's wearing nine jackets because she's freezing, <laughs> but no beret. You know, most of the heat goes out of your head. So maybe that's something you should consider. Maybe. Okay. So why don't we speak a little bit about how the most famous successful investors are measured on their success? Where else would you start but with Warren Buffett? Drink. Uh, <laughs> don't so. you tell me twice. <laughs> yeah. um, he has been called one of the most successful investors of all time. So what do you think defines his success? Yeah, of course, performance plays a big role in this perception. He wasn't entirely self-made. His father was in Congress, and he started out by investing money from his parents' wealthy friends. But the multiplication of that wealth has been astonishing. His personal wealth is now worth over $100 billion. So he's been pretty successful over his investing career. Yeah, and one of the interesting facts I've read about Buffett is if you took the average American salary of around $45,000, it would take 1.6 million years to accrue the same amount of money that Buffett has. So he has been extremely successful at creating wealth. Buffett has created his wealth by having a keen eye for long-term investments, a steadfast investment philosophy, investing in quality companies as opposed to dart throwing, and has a value-based philosophy that is derived from Benjamin Graham. Yeah, and 1.6 million years, incidentally, is how old Shawnee thinks I am. <laughs> so maybe I'm getting close to uh, to Buffett's yeah. uh, Buffett's <laughs> net worth. Yeah. So Buffett uh, Buffett has said that the stock market is a no called strike game. You don't have to swing at everything. You can just wait for your pitch. And the problem when you're a money manager is that your fans keep yelling, swing, you bum. <laughs> 
Um, and Buffett eloquently sums up in this statement that the edge that you as an individual investor has, that a lot of professional investors do not, and their success is often hindered by this. We've spoken a little bit about edge, and edge is basically an advantage that individual investors have that may allow them to have successful outcomes through equity investments. One of these edges is structural edge. Structural edge refers to the constructs that govern the way an investor goes about the investing process. Yeah, and we'll get into structural edge, but one of the edges that I have over Shawnee for baseball analogies <laughs> is I actually understand baseball. So, yeah, so uh, I was researching for this episode and I had to ask Mark what a no-called strike was. <laughs> yeah, she asked me a lot of bizarre questions. That one I couldn't figure out until I actually read this. But uh, but anyway, let's get back to structural edge. And so what that basically means is that professional investors have restrictive constructs. So around career progression, compensation, business goals, and that ultimately all of these things can influence the way that professionals invest. So we're just saying that professional investors have competing priorities. They're trying to do things that support the company they work for and to maximize their own compensation and, you know, just to keep their job. So sometimes these two disparate influences align and induce wise investing decisions, but sometimes they don't. Yeah, so this one area can be a real advantage for individual investors. Professionals certainly have some advantages over individual investors. Getting paid to do a job and charging other people for that job comes with standards around education and experience, support from other professionals, time to dedicate to their pursuit of investing, and access to tools and data. It also comes with pressure to perform over short periods of time to maximize compensation and limit career risk. Yeah, and career risk is something I obviously know a lot about because there's a lot of risk in uh, in my career just by my day-to-day actions. But basically what career risk means is that many professional investors are going to be very worried about how they perform in the short term. It's the equivalent of walking into your boss's office and trying to explain that you had – a year of work with really bad outcomes, but you're focused on the long run. And you think in 25 years, you will prove to be a great employee. But of course, there's no guarantee. And so you can see how this isn't really a realistic scenario. And that puts a lot of pressure on professional investors to invest in certain ways. And there's a lot of dimensions to this pressure. At the end of the day, it's a very competitive space. And these individuals are trying to advance professionally. So they're discouraged from doing anything that is too different. It's much easier to explain that you failed by doing the same thing as everyone else, own the same stocks, had the same forecast on interest rates, etc., than to explain that you failed doing something different. What this means is that the environment that's created is one of which many people are too scared to stray from the consensus. So diversity of opinions improve outcomes, but that doesn't happen often with professional investors. Morningstar Premium is designed to help you reach your investing goals. Our coverage spans over 50,000 securities and 2,000 funds and ETFs. Sign up to a four-week free trial through the link in the episode notes to access our global equity best ideas for our topics across borders. Find shares with sustainable, above-average dividend payouts and the best opportunities at home with five-star Aussie stocks. A Morningstar Premium subscription includes a ShareSide investor plan, allowing you to track all of your investment holdings in one place. And take advantage of ShareSide's investment performance and tax reporting, that has been built specifically for the needs of self-directed investors. If you love premium after your four-week trial and choose to subscribe, your subscription may be tax-deductible if you derive income from the share market. Sign up for a free trial today. 
So there are a few areas where individual investors, provided they are patient and disciplined, can have a structural advantage over professionals, allowing them to succeed with their financial goals. The first is a true focus on long-term investing. Every professional says that they are long-term investors, but a lot of these professionals operate in an environment that structurally discourages this. Many professionals are under pressure to outpace or at least match their peers over one-year periods. If they fail, the investor money walks. This can cause closet indexing where active managers build portfolios that differ little from the underlying index and performance chasing, where professionals are continually focused on hot stocks and sectors. It also means that many professional investors lack the patience to wait for stocks trading at meaningful discounts to fair value, or their patients to hold cheap and unloved shares long enough for them to approach fair value. In a study Morningstar conducted of US domestic equity funds, it was found that the turnover rate was around 63%. That means that the average holding period for stocks in that fund was 19 months. This certainly doesn't meet the definition of long-term investing, and the transaction costs and distributed capital gains can eat into investor gains. Professional investors know better than most why taking a long-term approach to investing is beneficial. Yet even with this knowledge, the pressure to maximize short-term performance to protect job security and remuneration has an outsized influence on the investing habits of many professionals. Individual investors don't have any structural impediments to being long-term investors except their own lack of patience. All right. So so to sum it up, there's a lot of pressure on professional investors. That's yes. what we're saying. Yeah. Now, we have a friend, Laura Zakelli, who mm-hmm. we used to work with. Yeah. <laughs> and what does she say about pressure? She says pressure makes diamonds, right? Yes. Yes, she does. <laughs> she does indeed. So we'll remember that. All right. The next area we can look at is the ability to buy low and sell high. So that has to be the most intuitive concept in investing. Buying when prices are low and selling when they're high. Pretty easy, right? Well, the structure of many funds makes this simple concept hard to execute. So past performance has an outsized influence on fund flows. Basically, funds that have done well will receive a bunch of new cash to invest, while poorly performing funds are forced to sell securities to meet those cash outflows. And this can force even a well-meaning professional investor into doing the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Many professional investors don't want to carry large cash balances since they'll cause their portfolio to differ significantly from the associated index, which, as we previously mentioned, many of them do not want to do. So in an effort to prevent cash balances from accumulating, Funds will invest the incoming cash. So in many cases, they are investing when the assets they hold are overpriced. The opposite occurs, of course, when investors withdraw funds after poor performance. Fund managers are forced to sell in order to generate cash to send back to investors. They're often selling at exactly the same time that assets are likely cheap. So individual investors don't have to worry about fund flows influencing their behavior, and they can concentrate on the underlying value of the assets and their long-term goals. All right, so why don't we lower the bar a little bit from Warren Buffett and what makes a good investor and speak about how the two of us measure our success as investors. So when you say like lower the bar, we're like really lowering the bar. (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see. All right, I can start. So (laughs) I have an extremely long time horizon, as we know. And it's not that I don't focus on performance. I'm human. Of course, I look at performance figures. And of course, I look at whether what I've invested in does well. 
Ultimately, though, there's two things that I like to do on a half yearly basis. The first is understanding my projected income and expenses, and then in turn, how much I can save and contribute to my investments. And I use this as an outline, which I spend five minutes every pay reviewing to understand whether I'm on track with this projection. Then I do a review on a half yearly basis to see whether I've met these savings goals. And ultimately, with investing, there are a few things that are in your control. Performance is not one of them. So for me, it's not really a determinant of how successful I am as an investor in the short term. One of the determinants that does make me successful, though, um, and what I can control, unless Mark decides he has had enough of me, is how much I am contributing, which I think is especially crucial early in my investing career. My ultimate contributor to success at this point of my investing journey is saving. It's the benefit of being younger and having a while until you reach your goals. You could be the world's smartest investor, but time is such a large component of investing that you'll never get back. And it's such a huge contributor to your success. So it makes sense to me that it's my focus right now. Yeah. So that is, of course, definitely a factor in what makes an investor successful. Discipline doesn't just mean keeping your hands off your investments and resisting temptation to chop and change. Discipline also means that you are consistent with your contributions. If you have a goal of $2 million for your retirement, you've got 30 years to get there, and you've got $50,000, it's extremely unlikely the market is going to get you there by itself. Exactly. But as we spoke about with the average American salary, I'm not going to reach my financial goals just by saving that and I'm not aiming to be a billionaire like Buffett, um, but we've spoken about my retirement goals in the portfolio construction episode, so I'll speak a little bit more about performance. I'll try for this not to sound like a huge plug, but I honestly do use this for my personal investments. There's a goal calculator on Morningstar Premium that allows you to calculate a required rate of return and then connect your investment portfolio to it. So when I review my portfolio every six months, it allows me to see my progress towards that goal and whether the required rate of return has drastically changed. And that really hasn't been the case. It has lowered ever so slightly, but because of the time horizon, it's so long and the required amount is quite hefty compared to what I have. The rate of return stays quite stable and helps me to know that I'm on track. And all the other validation is nice, you know, like I'm beating the benchmarks, et cetera, et cetera. But of course I am. I'm in a portfolio that has a higher ratio of small and medium caps that looks very different to a broad market index. Ultimately, though, none of these comparisons really matter during my journey if I don't have the amount I need to properly fund my retirement and do what I want to do, like get my pilot's license. So Mark, that's a couple of ways I measure my success as an investor. What about you? How do you measure your success? Yeah. So I would say that it has evolved over time. I think I've talked about this crazy spreadsheet, which I have. (laughs) So it has something like 20 tabs and I've been using it since 2001. So yeah, my spreadsheet and some of my clothes or most of my clothes are probably older than many of our (laughs) listeners. Mark talks about this spreadsheet sometimes and it just amazes me that he has a spreadsheet that's 20 years old. Um, And I know you love how I met your mother, Mark, but there's an episode where it comes out that Ted's best friend growing up was a red balloon. And this is oddly reminiscent of that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty funny. There's pictures of Ted and this red balloon in his mother's house. (laughs) I will guarantee you there are no pictures of me in my spreadsheet. But uh, but yeah, anyway, I will say that you can't put a price on loyalty, Shani. And my spreadsheet and I have been through a lot together. So we went through the GFC together, numerous Microsoft Office upgrades, and of course, the constant threat of viruses, which you know is especially prevalent with me because I click on pretty much anything that anyone sends me. Yeah, like 20% of my job is IT, basically, because <laughs> I help you out with this stuff. But the spreadsheet does seem pretty indestructible. It's like the poster child for why you should 
invest in Microsoft. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> well, now that we've established that I'm a loser, let's move on. So when I first started investing, I would compare the performance of each of my investment accounts to the S&P 500 on a monthly basis. And I can't believe I'm actually sharing this, but before this episode, I went back and I checked and I did that for 175 straight months. So that is 14 and a half years. So that's like when, you know, like mothers say that they have a child that's 56 months. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But this is 14 and a half years. <laughs> so this is a good time to stay. If it's not obvious, do not be like me. Um, but I will say that this exercise taught me a couple things. So my investment approach was to focus on quality, focus on income, and focus on low beta. And part of this is just because I started investing right before the dot-com crash. So I had a pretty ingrained disdain for speculation, speculative stocks, which is probably evident in all my what Shani likes to call my so-called rants. And uh, and yeah, by looking at this monthly over a long run, I saw the impact of my approach. So on average in months when the market performed really well, I would underperform. When the market did really poorly, I would significantly outperform. The other thing that it taught me was the power of compounding through dividend reinvestment. So all in all, my track record of this time was decent compared to the market, but I knew enough about investing to know that I was actually cheating. So my portfolio performed because I was comparing an index return that did not include dividends with a portfolio where not only was I getting income, but I was also compounding that income over time by automatically reinvesting dividends. Yeah. So I think maybe that this is something to dive into a bit because there's quite a lot to this. Could you explain a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So yeah, compounding, of course, is earning a return on a return and is one of the most powerful forces in investing. So let's take an example. So Transurban is a stock I own, currently has a dividend yield of 2.57%. So all that means is if I invest $1,000 in Transurban, I'll get $25.70 a year in cash. Now, with the dividend reinvestment plan, I would automatically buy more shares with those dividends, which means I would have 2.57% more shares at the end of the year. So I'm being... A bit simplistic here with this example, but I'm trying to get the concept across. So if I have more shares, that means that next year I will have more income, which means I will buy even more shares and the cycle continues. So in a situation where this company is raising the dividend, I'm accelerating that compounding because it's just adding to all of this. So as, as I started to see this effect on my spreadsheet slash best friend, I started to separate out the shares I originally bought and the shares that I was getting from the dividend reinvestment plan and separating out the income income that I would be entitled to from my original shares, and then the income I was getting from my original shares and the new shares I bought using the dividend reinvestment. And this taught me an enormously important lesson as an investor. And yeah, I just think it modified my behavior to my benefit. So the lesson from this is that spreadsheets can change lives. Yes, they can. Maybe just mine. Maybe mine is special. I don't really know. Um, but yeah, I'm glad you're getting a kick out of this, Shawnee. Um, me and my old spreadsheet. But, uh, but yeah. So what I learned is, and just like you were saying earlier, that, you know, it's not just the academic definition of compounding, but I think that this painstakingly dull and tedious exercise really ingrained this concept in my mind and my investing approach, like what compounding actually is and what it can do. So you're always going to get the impact of compounding as an investor, but by using a dividend reinvestment plan, I learned that I could increase this compounding effect. So the change in behavior came from this focus on compounding, the income I was earning, and the effect on that from just compounding in general. I said compounding a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, this is really the crazy part. I started to 
actually realize that another accelerant of compounding my income was when the share prices went down. So soon I was actually pretty happy when share prices went down. Yeah. So you're saying the exact opposite of how most investors feel when share prices go down. So could you explain this just a little more? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I'm talking a lot here, but yeah. So let's use that same transurban example. I said that it had a dividend yield of 2.57%. So let's say the share price fell by half. Now the dividend yield would be 5.14% because remember yield is just the dividend divided by the share price. The price falls by half, the yield doubles. So now I'm buying even more shares each year and increasing my income by even more. So that compounding effect on my income is actually doubling. So from a behavioral perspective, it's taught me to see the opportunity and positive things that occur when the market falls, which has heavily influenced my behavior during the GFC, for example, where I put money into the market rather than panic sell like a lot of investors. It also got me comfortable with a certain kind of company. I wanted quality companies in non-cyclical industries that paid sustainable and growing dividends. And that doesn't mean that is the investment approach that everyone should take, but it gave me the basis for the intellectual framework that governs my investment strategy. And this comfort I have in what I'm doing gives me something that is critical and successful investing, the ability to stick to it in lots of different market conditions and not chase the latest investing fad. And none of this means that this is how you should measure your success as an investor. We share these examples to show that goals and successes are individual to you and your measures of success should be as well. Keep in mind that there are certain advantages that you as an individual investor have over the market and professional investors that can contribute to your success, especially over the long term. There are no structural barriers or constraints to the way that you invest and there are no expectations other than the expectations that you have of yourself and there's room to define your own success. Okay, we did it, Shani. We did it. This is the third podcast we've recorded today. And I did a webinar before that. People listening to this probably wouldn't know that. Yeah, we did about three and a half hours of recording. Yeah, yeah. So my, yeah, I'm getting a bit croaky. A bit croaky. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's... That's great. But anyway, thank you guys very much for joining. We would love it if you could share this with your friends. We'd love it if you could make comments and uh, give us a rating on your podcast app. And if you have any suggestions for future shows or just want to say hi, my email address is in the podcast notes. Thank you guys very much for joining. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.